Blog Talk Radio. Family-owned and operated hatchery. 
They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer here to tell you that if you have backyard poultry, nothing is more important than making sure your feathered friends are safe from infectious poultry diseases. Learn the simple steps to keep your birds healthy by visiting this website, healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. That's healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. A message from the USDA. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. We do have a very, very good uh, and informative and important show for you uh, today. We want to thank all of our listeners, those of you who are listening live, the thousands of you that will listen to the archive, and of course all the homeschoolers that join us every day to incorporate the show into their homeschool curriculum. We thank you very much, and of course you may be on holiday break right now, So, uh, but we thank you for tuning in when you can. We have a lot of wonderful guests today, uh, as many of you know and have been following. Uh, I guess it really started at the beginning of last week uh, with avian influenza found um, up in the Washington State area and apparently some wild uh, falcons, I believe it was. Um, and uh, again, we can only assume that because the birds are migrating south, we have uh, had a finding of uh, avian influenza in a backyard flock of about 100 uh, guineas and chickens in the Oregon area. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's concerning to a lot of people. And uh, we want to know really how concerning, um, what do we need to be concerned with, different things we need to do if we live in that area on the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, California, what that we need to do if we have a backyard flock um, of chickens, or maybe a lot of folks have uh, ducks as well and waterfowl. So there's just a lot of questions, and a lot, and with a lot of questions, a lot of bad information gets spread, especially on chicken blogs and chicken forums. So um, as always, like we try to do on the show, uh, bring in the experts in their field to try to shed some light, uh, study-based, fact-based, um, science-based information, uh, and today we're talking about this specific uh, findings. I'm not so sure 
that I would call it a, a, an out maybe in the commercial hatcheries in Canada, but uh, I don't know if I'm quite ready to use that word uh, outbreak when there's been, I guess at this point, my understanding, one finding of this in a, in a backyard flock. So my first guest today uh, is with the USDA APHIS program, Dr. Mark uh, Davidson. And uh, we're going to bring him on live here. He will be our first guest. And then because he's very busy, I'm sure, right now, the holidays and everything that's going on in his department, uh, once we've kind of exhausted our questions for, for the doctor, uh, we'll let him go and get, get on <laughs> with his work. And then I've got uh, another team coming on, Dr. Patiski from UC Davis in California, uh, um, Dr. Bridget McRae from Delaware State University, and uh, Peter Brown uh, with First State Vet Supply. Um, and uh, they're going to be talking about AI and influenza, kind of in, in, in a more term of uh, prevention and and uh, vaccine, if, if that's even an issue, um, prevention, uh, treatment, signs, symptoms, and, and things like that. So I'm going to go ahead and go over to the uh, phone lines right now, and we'll bring on um, Dr. Mark um, uh, Davidson. Uh, doctor, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to join you all today and uh, talk a little bit about um, the activities around the avian influenza finding and answer some of your questions. That's great. We really appreciate, again, taking your time out of here. I'm sure a busy schedule um, um, out there. First and, and foremost, we would love for you to tell us a little bit about um, yourself, kind of uh, your, your credentials, and then, of course, your um, position with USDA right now and what, what that position really, uh, what kind of responsibilities you have for us out here in the public, uh, bird lovers in the public. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Well, um, I'm a, a veterinarian, and I spent a, a few years in um, private practice, large animal practice, and then I joined the USDA and I've had a variety of positions from working in our our field uh, directly with producers to um, uh, emergency management roles. And my current position is I'm uh, the Associate Deputy Administrator over our National Import Export Services. So I oversee all of our operations involving um, the trade and our, our animals and animal products. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very, very, very good. Um, let's let's uh, we we appreciate that. We appreciate you coming on again. Let's let's start off with some of the questions that I've I've jotted down. We do have a live chat room going on, and and uh, we may have a chance to to monitor that on occasion to see if there's any questions um, from from our listeners that would be appropriate. Um, I, I guess the first question is um, how significant uh, is this is this finding? We we, we heard initially about I guess the quote unquote outbreak in commercial houses in Canada and then now we, we, we saw it kind of progress to the wild birds in um the Washington state, which may we'll we'll find out a different strain completely than what's found maybe in the commercial uh flocks up there. And then now as as maybe the migration of that with the wild birds coming south, we have the backyard flock. So how significant is this finding based on this strain, and and to follow up with that kind of, uh, um, is it because it's found now in a backyard flock make it more significant? And is this the first time this strain's been found in the U.S.? So kind of all three of those may be answered in the same uh, question. Sure thing. So 
So I think um, it's important for us to know that uh, waterfowl, shorebirds, and gulls all may serve as a natural host and reservoir for avian influenza viruses. And there's been a lot of work done characterizing the different strains that are in the different populations of the flyways. Um, and it's it's not unusual for domestic birds who've had contact with wild birds to develop avian influenza. Uh, typically what we see are low pathogenic avian influenzas, so they make the birds sick, but we don't see a lot of death loss in a real, um, you know, where they're really, really sick. Um, would, that, would, all, would, yeah. would the low pathogenic also have anything to do with how fast or easy it is to spread, or is it just um, the more treatable and not as much death in a flock with low pathogenic? Well, I think sometimes uh, you can see uh, differences with uh, the the highly pathogenic strains. Um, you, you know that um, they can be more virulent, so um, easier to infect um, the birds and cause sickness. So you'll see some differences that way. But uh, but I think the big big component, like you said, is the impact of once the birds become sick, what happens to them, you, you know, more severe illness and death loss um, that we'll okay. see with the highly pathogenic strains. Okay. So that may be, is, is there um, uh, any, where does it, because it's a question we'll ask later as far as the, the um, risk of it becoming uh, transferred over to humans, is there a greater chance of that with the highly pathogenic versus the the other? Yeah, so I, I think one of the important things is, um, you know, as we talk mm -hmm. about, um, you, you talked about the different findings that we, we have, and in British uh, Columbia, Canada, they have had, um, uh, it's an H5N2, that's how we, we type and identify um, highly pathogenic avian influenza, and uh, it's had a significant impact um, for Canada on their commercial poultry industry. We found um, that same virus in Washington State in um, uh, 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 a pintail duck, and then we also found what is an H5N8 in the Jeer falcons in Washington State. Now, even though they're different um, types, these viruses, we were able to do um, basically genetic fingerprinting, and these viruses are related together. So they um, are, are closely related um, and, and have similar genetics. So we know they're linked. Um, and so as the virus moved down the Pacific Flyway, um, the backyard uh, flock in Oregon was infected with the H5N8, which was the same virus that we saw in the Jeer Falcon in Washington State. So kind of shows um, we our, our laboratory technicians are really good and could do a lot with molecular genetics to tell how the viruses change and all. So that said, Andy, uh, your, your question as far as um, what the risk to, to humans is, this particular strain has occurred, um, the H5N8 has occurred um, um, in other places in the world, and um, 
what we've seen um, and we continue to work with our partners at the Centers for Disease Control is that this particular highly pathogenic um, avian influenza has not had any um, uh, issues for humans. So um, that's good news because I, I know we all realize uh, some of the concerns a few years back with some of the the Asian um, avian influenzas and sicknesses that it caused in, in humans. But this particular one, um, we have not seen that uh, situation. Um, we had a, just had a question in the chat room about um, uh, the if you could explain the term uh, virulence um, um, for them to let, let them know it's easy, what, what that means. Sure. And, and so um, it's basically... Um, how infective the 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 virus the the avian influenza virus if um it it causes the um so so some viruses only a few birds will get sick and in others um the majority of the flock will get sick and so when we talk about a, a higher virulence um that's what i'm talking about more more birds are, are getting sick within the flock and then um you may see more severe clinical signs. Okay, great. Um, doing doing searches and things, uh, I found that we have had obviously avian influenza in in the United States. This particular strain that was found in the um, the backyard flock there in Oregon has has that specific um, strain been found here before? Uh, this specific strain has not been found here before. Um, but like you said, we, we have had um, three outbreaks of um, um, uh, highly pathogenic um, avian influenza and poultry, commercial poultry, but that's over a number of years since we started tracking the disease in uh, the early 20th century. So, so just, just three um, um, uh, times since you started tracking this that commercial poultry in the United States has been affected by the AI, or the highly the, pathogenic AI. The, the highly pathogenic, yes. Gotcha, very good. Um, so that answers a few of my questions here right there on, on my list. Is this So this may be the first time, and I missed, I'm sorry if I missed it earlier, that it's been found in uh, a hobby flock, backyard type flock situation? Well, we did. Of? Um, going back, um, there was a, an HPAI uh, outbreak in the northeastern United States back in 1983 to 1984, and uh, I do know from our historical records that uh, the disease was found in backyard flocks as well as commercial poultry during that time frame, but that's been a long time. So. Yeah, a long time ago. And... Um uh, this was an interesting question as well. How uh, this particular flock of, uh, as the uh, alert reports, about 100 birds of guineas and chickens, um, how was this found in that particular flock? We were curious if the, if the owner of the, the flock saw illness and, and reported it appropriately to USDA, local vet, local extension, um, or, or um, um, how, how was this specific backyard flock um, identified. Right. So the the owners saw an unusual number of deaths in um, mm -hmm. their flock, and so they contacted a veterinarian about that. Mm. The veterinarian reported it to the, the state of Oregon, 
And um, uh, because um, high-path AI is what we call a foreign animal disease, um, mm-hmm. which is a disease that has um, potentially serious consequences, and that's not in, endemic to the U.S., so we don't have it here all the time in the U.S. Um, we've got a, a number of uh, trained uh, veterinarians throughout the United States, both um, state and federal animal health officials, and um, a disease investigation was done um, based on um, the sickness in the birds. And so I I do want to take this opportunity um, to encourage all of you, if um, you've got um, unexpected sickness or death in um, any of your your birds or in in poultry, um, we do encourage you to contact uh, Vet, your, your veterinarian or our state and federal animal health officials and, and let us know and we'll work with you all to, to investigate and, and have a good understanding of, of what's occurring um, because uh, this is a, uh, an important disease and, and we want to uh, um, w- work with you all and, and stay on top of, of where it is because, uh, like you said, this is a, a a single finding at this point, and uh, we don't want to end up with an outbreak. Right. Now, um, uh, because we talk about, and and you heard the um, ad that I play with USDA and the website and and how important it is to to report sick birds and things like that, you're in the business, uh, I'm in the business, I understand that, and a lot of our listeners, um, and, and you see this a lot, that well, if I call, then uh, especially up the chain, maybe not my local vet down the street, but maybe if I call the state or maybe if I go even higher and call the USDA, um, let's face it, some uh, or a lot of people are afraid that that would automatically mean instant death to their flock. Um, I, I've, you know, so so when when we talk about that, I guess that leads into the next question. And I know that doesn't always happen, and I'm going to let you explain explain that and what h- how that works when they call. But uh, related to this, uh, of them calling, we want them to call because, like you said, we want to try to nip this in the bud. And one finding, if we get out of this with, with just that one finding, um, then, then that would be a, a good thing. Um, the, the current flock of 100 now um, that this lady had um, or this, this person had, um, what – is that flock still in existence? Were they all um, were they all tested necropsies, which means, of course, they were cold? Um, tell us kind of about the flock itself and and kind of that process. Did did they test a few birds, and then when they found out maybe it was the highly pathogenic AI that you know what we recommend based on what this is to for the safety of everybody is to call the call the flock. So kind of. Um, um, where the flock is now, kind of what happened to it, what was it cold, and then, of course, was it cold due to this really highly pathogenic strain? Sure, and, and that those are really good questions. And and so with this particular flock, the the flock was cold over the weekend. Um, the, the birds that hadn't died already were humanely euthanized. And um, we've worked with the owner to clean and disinfect the, the premises. Um, before any new birds will be brought brought into that um, farm, um, we'll do some environmental sampling to make sure that uh, all of the cleaning and disinfection um, was adequate and worked um, because we don't want to 
bring uh, new birds in and expose them to any remaining virus in the environment. So, so you know, with this disease, because of the sickness and death that it does cause, um, realistically, the um, main course of action is uh, unfortunately to to call the flock, as you said, Andy. But um, but it is important that um, we we do get the notification, and and because um, I, I realize. Um, our, our backyard flocks are very important to to all of the the individuals for for many different purposes, from uh, food to pets to to different reasons. But um, we want to to be able to identify this and and work together so that we don't spread it to other flocks, to our, our neighbors, into our commercial industry. And so um, that's why the the early reporting is so important. Now, uh, we we do do a laboratory testing to confirm um, that it is the virus, and um, before we took those actions, so um, you, you know through those testings, we conduct a number of investigations every year that don't turn out to be a foreign animal disease. It's actually fairly mm-hmm. rare that we have that situation, but um, early detection is important to protect our our overall health of our, our um, poultry and, and birds in the U.S. Um, with the, for, uh, this is a question of mine. With, with the flock of 100, um, it would, and, and now, now the entire flock, of course, has been cold because of the, uh, of the virus that, that they had, the highly pathogenic, was, uh, was every bird tested to see if, every bird had it or would it matter or would it tell you any kind of information you would need to know if say out of 130 had it or three or maybe uh, 95% of the flock had it, um, it by testing all 100 birds and getting a percentage of how many tested positive would that help you in any way of uh, or give you any type of information you could use or would well, it matter? We, we don't um typically test all of the birds in the flocks. Our our scientists have worked out um, a, a sampling size so that we can have a good confidence. And so, um, you, you know, the targeting here would have been for those birds that are sick or dead. And, um, you know, I don't know all, all the types of birds that were in this flock, but I knew, do mm-hmm. know there were guineas and chickens. And so we'll take samples mm-hmm. from um, both groups of um uh, both types to see if if one type had it or or one type uh, you know the guineas had it and the the but both the guineas and chickens had the the highly pathogenic and avian influenza so we don't typically test all of them but we will um, uh, test those that are sick or dead and uh, if there's not enough samples there we may test a few additional ones um, and uh, go from there. Is um is there a number that you would recommend to our listeners? Because we obviously our listeners have all range size of flocks from maybe just four to to maybe four hundred, and and in, in this case you saw an unusual amount of of deaths in, in a short period of time. I'm assuming so. Um, with with a, a flock of a hundred, um, what would you say would be um uh, a a number to have someone concerned enough to say something's 
wrong here. I mean, we all know who have kept chickens a long time, one every now and then, maybe two every now and then. But, you know, if you have 100 and all of a sudden you walk out and 10 are dead, or if you have a flock, but but if you have four or six and one is dead, you know, that that's still, a, you know, one out of, that's a quarter of your flock if you just have four birds, which makes it a high number. But we know that just one out of four may not be cause of alarm. What And, and of course, as Dr. McRae and, and Peter Brown, the chicken doctor, talk about, look at your birds. You know, get that five-gallon bucket out and, and watch them so you can see these signs and symptoms we'll talk about in the next segment. But is, is there just kind of a, a general rule of thumb of what um, – we'll get signs and symptoms again with, with our next guest, but is there a number that you all may utilize and say, hey, they have a, a certain percentage of their flock of, of their dead that, that may cause – some eyebrows to go up. Right. And and so I can't really give you a, a hard, fast number, but what I would encourage you is, um, you know, like you said, we, um, as part of agriculture, there there is occasional death loss, occasional sickness. But I would look, you know, especially um, as your, your other guests will talk about, you, you know, um, respiratory. So, um, it, you know, signs of a cold and uh, a, a large percentage of the flock is impacted or you're seeing, you know, uh, s- um, several chickens um, or, or birds die. Um, those are all important signs and, and give a call. And, uh, it, you know, so if you're seeing something unusual and, uh, you know, a lot of your birds are, are getting sick or a lot of your birds are dying, um please err on the side of caution and, and give a call and we can talk through and, um, you, you know, decide on a course of a, uh, an investigation. But there's not a, a ballpark because, uh, like you said, uh, if you've got four birds, uh, you know, one of four is 25%. But um, but, I, but I think just keeping an eye, if you're seeing a, a respiratory disease go through, um, uh-huh. your, your flock, um, you're seeing, you know, um, death loss, um, uh, for those with, with layers, you know, a significant drop off in egg production. Those are all triggers and please give us a call. Great. Uh, and moving on to, to our next question and one in the chat room we had was, this kind of relative to this, uh, Walter was wanting to know, or his comment was since this came from wild hawks, what is the solution to trap and test the hawks? But Dr. McCray in the chat room uh, um, had pointed out that we're not sure, at least, and you can answer this, that this backyard flock was, in fact, infected by the wild hawks. We just found a strain of this in the wild hawks um, in Washington, the strain in Oregon. Um, is, uh, we're not, we're, so we're not sure. I guess it I guess you would you ever be sure of how this how the backyard flock um uh was infected other than maybe again wild migratory birds right uh, you know I think our uh, assumption based on um these birds had exposure to to um wild migratory birds in some ponds and also our our assumption mm-hmm. based on the um the the study and all is that it came from wild migratory, but knowing which ones is going to be difficult. But what we are going to do is work with partners in the um, the, the wildlife side. And uh, um, so we, we've we always, uh, a number of years ago, we did a lot of surveillance in all of our flyways to ha- have an understanding of which avian influenzas were circulating in our um, 
wild bird populations, um, our waterfowl populations. Um, but based on this, we're going to do some sampling in the Pacific Flyway, some limited sampling to have an idea of um, how widespread it is within the flyway. And we'll also keep doing like we did in Washington State when there are large die-offs of waterfowl. Um, um, we do some testing and investigation, and, and many times, um, you know, it's other diseases like aspergillosis or, or those type of things. But we're, we're working with our uh, wildlife agencies to look for that uh, targeted sampling in um, the Pacific Flyway to have a better understanding where these particular viruses are. Um, and um, we'll continue across the U.S. to investigate large waterfowl die-offs to um, look to see what um, if avian influenza was um, present there. And and often um, the the wild waterfowl they just serve as a reservoir. They um, typically do not get sick from the virus, but uh, they can uh, hold it and then spread it to those who haven't been exposed to it before. Okay, you answered a lot of the next kind of question, or what are the next steps, but um, this, I believe this was found on Friday. So, you know, in, in our minds, we're thinking over the weekend and throughout today, um, you know, there's a team on the ground, and they're they're going around maybe in a, a five or maybe ten-mile radius of this backyard flock and testing other hobby farm or backyard flocks. Does that happen? Do, would y'all test? Are y'all just looking for um, wild migratory bird deaths in the area and getting people to report those so you can test? Uh, are, you, are you trying to find maybe other hobby farms and saying, hey, you know, do you mind? We just had this happen two miles up the road. If, if we test a few of your birds, is there any kind of testing within a so many mile radius of this backyard flock? Right, and, and so um, we we will, um, the state of Oregon's working with us and we'll be setting uh, control zones uh, around this um, uh, this farm that was infected. But over the weekend, uh, our, our state and federal um, staff, they visited about 35 nearby um, uh, farms um, to, uh -huh. to get an idea of what poultry was and backyard birds were in the area and to provide information on biosecurity. I, I think, you know, I want to emphasize on this call, we talked oh, yeah. about reporting if your birds are sick, but please um, um, be aware and take the, the very simple steps. And, and Andy, I know you've got uh, some videos and, and webinars on, um, you know, very, very simple hygiene steps, such as keeping, um, cages and equipment clean, not sharing supplies with other poultry owners, um, you know, where you can um, either preventing or minimizing contact with wild waterfowl. Um, those are steps I want to emphasize. But um, we're, um, the, the state of Oregon, uh, and, and we'll be part of it, are planning a, a town hall meeting in the area uh, today, okay. actually, to talk um uh, to producers, because I know it's a concern. Uh, we we all care very um, deeply for our our animals, and um, so they'll be providing information, and uh, we'll be um, developing a, a surveillance plan so that we can do surveillance in the in increased area, and also you know the hiding report reporting for any um, sickness. So, 
and just a couple of more questions here, and then uh, uh, we'll let I'll check the chat room and and to see if there's any from from our guests that are coming on in the next segment for for you as well. Um, um, if what what if anything would change uh, about the um, the findings uh, if another backyard or hobby flock tests positive, or um, how many more would need to test positive to for there to be a change of what we're doing now uh, to make it more of a going to the next alert level if there's such a thing. Um, but but I guess really to keep it simple, what if anything would change if a, just one more backyard flock in the area tests positive? Um, would right. anything change? What, 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 what would the next level be? You know, I think if, if we see another um, backyard flock test positive, our response is going to be very similar, um, whether it was in Oregon or somewhere else. You know, we're going to work um, with the the owner and uh, address the disease on on that farm, and then we're going to, you know, increase our outreach, um, and increase the emphasis on biosecurity, and do surveillance in the the area. So we're going to be working through that, you know, and hopefully um, we don't see any more. But you know, uh, we need to be prepared and uh, work together for. Um, if we do, we'll take similar responses. Um, we do have plans if, um, uh, you know, we were actually to be in an outbreak. Um, we, we have response plans where we can mobilize uh, a lot of our uh, state and federal uh, uh, animal health officials to work and uh, respond, um, you know, and that's with dealing with the disease on infected premises, uh, controlling it in an area so it doesn't spread further. And enhance surveillance, and, and always our goal is um, to um, uh, go back to the state where we don't have uh, highly pathogenic avian influenza. Mm-hmm. And then, and we'll wrap it up with this, with kind of the the, the two questions: um, is um, I've posted a couple of times on my Facebook uh, maps of the flyways on ranging from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast, and it looks like there's really a massive, I think they call the Mississippi Flyway, coming straight down to the center of the, of the United States. So uh, I know right now it's probably focused on Washington, Oregon, and, and California. So that's my next question is, as this seems to Canada, Washington, Oregon, are, are we starting to um, – are y'all starting to kind of alert folks in Northern California, California area? I guess that would be number one, those, those three states over there kind of on the coast. And then I had several folks post over the weekend, I'm in Arkansas. Do, do I need to be concerned? Or I don't have to worry about that. I'm on the East Coast. So uh, I guess it's a, kind of a two-part question. Uh, I guess um, California may be the next state of, of, of high interest with you guys of looking for this as it progresses south, I guess, with the migratory birds. And then um, further east you go um, with these folks that post, I'm I'm in Arkansas, do I need to be concerned about this? Or I'm on the east coast. And, of course, I post this flyways um, of of these birds, and you see they just (laughs) cover the United States. But uh, with this particular uh, finding, um, just concentrating on those three states right now, well, I think our our primary focus is on um, you know working along the Pacific Flyway, like you talked about, especially Washington, mm-hmm. Oregon, but uh, California, of course, has been uh, alerted, and California has a very strong biosecurity for the birds program, and uh, 
So they've got a, a really good, strong network to share information. And, you know, we appreciate you having us on today. I, I think it's an important time for everyone, uh, even though you might not be there. It's a good reminder about uh, reporting, looking for signs, and taking care of your biosecurity. So um, as far as we know, these particular viruses are only in the Pacific Flyway right now. And, uh, you know, that's where we'll do increased um, surveillance. Um, but all throughout the U.S. will continue if we've, you know, got a large wild waterfowl die-off to investigate it in conjunction with the, the wildlife agencies. And, um, you know, we're using all of these opportunities to, to ask everyone to be um, a heightened awareness. And we've had um, a similar calls with our commercial poultry industry to update them on the disease and encourage them to increase their biosecurity. So we're we're all working together for um, our our flock of, or the health of our U.S. flock, and uh, so uh, even though you might be in Arkansas or on the East Coast, uh, it's a, a good time to review your biosecurity and uh, keep those steps. And um, as we get more information, uh, we will of course share that. And uh, if we were to, you know, see a, a change, you know, we'll be sharing that, and it. it increase um, our concern and expand our response. But we're monitoring nationwide, but our, our response effort right now is strongly focused in the, the Oregon and Washington area in conjunction with the, the our state counterparts there. Super. We're running right on time. So what I'm going to do as planned is I've got um, uh, Dr. McCray with Delaware State that's on and um, Dr. Petiski from UC Davis and uh, Peter Brown with First State Vet Supply. The next segment, we're going to talk about kind of the biosecurity, the prevention, uh, treatment, if, if, if any vaccine, if any, someone on my Facebook page. But I just vaccinate your good people. So we're going to talk about that. And, um, uh, and, and is there one available and all that kind of stuff? And, and uh, science and illness and things like that. And just a minute, but I did uh, in the email uh, suggest that right before we let you go, I was going to ask. Because again, they may have uh, questions that I may have forgot to ask that may may seem pertinent. So I'm going to first bring on uh, Peter Brown, um, also known as the Chicken Doctor, uh, over in uh, Maryland with First State Vet Supply. And Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll go to break before before we go to our next segment of topics. Um, But do you have any? uh, We'll try to limit the one so we can get on his way. But maybe a a pertinent question for for the doctor with USDA. Yeah, um, my question would be um, I'm interested in whether the birds were um, disposed of in place uh, on the farm or were they trucked to a landfill uh, or how how were the birds disposed of after they were euthanized? Uh, Well, I'm going to have to apologize. I I can't answer that specific question. Um, I I know uh, we've uh, got a number of different... um, techniques we use from uh, composting on farm, um, uh, incineration, or uh, controlled landfill. And I don't know the specifics that was used um, with this flock by our our folks on the ground, but uh, we will use those different techniques. And if um, composting on the farm works really well um, because you're not moving anything off, the the heat cycles kill the virus, Um, but um, uh, uh, incineration or uh, controlled movement to uh, you know a, a landfill with the appropriate 
environmental controls and all or all other um, techniques that can be used, but I, I can't give you the specifics for this flock. Okay. I, the reason I uh, the reason I asked was uh, I know from previous outbreaks, uh, 83, 84, uh, and uh, 2003, uh, at least um, Pennsylvania, Virginia, uh, there were issues with burying them on site. Um, I know that uh, uh, in the late 1990s uh, in Virginia, they were digging a foundation for a school and they dug up a bunch of chicken carcasses that had been buried there, and they were pretty much oh. intact. So it kind of uh, raised an alarm for everybody. So I just thought uh, I would ask that particular question. I have an interest in that. Sure, sure. And, and you know, what you said, uh, you know, sometimes we, we will bury on site, um, but usually uh, with smaller numbers, that's a potential. Um, but, but those other ones in our um, toolbox, we use quite frequently, whether it's composting or, um, you, you know, a controlled burial at a landfill to address those issues. Um, those are unfortunately lessons learned from the past. And, uh, but the, the main thing is, uh, however we approach, we want to ensure that the disposal doesn't lead to spreading the disease elsewhere. So we uh, use uh, real stringent biosecurity. Thank you. Great. Thank you for that question. And I've got, I believe this is the uh, area code here for Dr. McCray uh, with Delaware State University. Dr. McCray, thank you very much for joining us today as well. We'll get to our topic issue after the next break, but do you have any questions for um, the doc with USDA? Um, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Doctor. I had a question. Since the flock owner had used a veterinarian to seek advice and get a diagnosis, what kind of veterinarian did they use? Was it a state vet or a local vet? Was it a dog-cat vet, a horse vet, an avian vet? That's my question. Yeah, and... Um, I I, I don't know, I, you know, the, having not been there and talked with the owner, I don't have the specifics of what, what type of veterinarian was called. I, I just know it was reported, and then uh, the state uh, of Oregon was notified, and, and uh, we began um, our investigation uh, jointly at that time. Thank you. Okay, great. And then we'll go down and uh, Dr. Petesky with UC Davis. Do you have any questions uh, for Dr. Mark Davidson? Um, I didn't have any questions. I think um, Dr. Davidson did an excellent job. The only thing I was just going to add on to um, what Peter was asking about disposal methods was um, there's all different ways of disposing of large amounts of poultry carcasses, and uh, the, 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 there's a lot of tools that you can do them. The thing I just want to point out is you just want to do it correctly, as long as it's done correctly, and this is where the USDA um, can really step in and, and really help. The most important thing within all those tools is that you don't take live birds off of the farm that are infected. Obviously, the USDA knows that. We just want to make sure that um, if there are people out there that have birds that are sick, that um, they don't compound the problem by taking those birds off of backyard facilities and trying to take them to veterinarians. The most important thing to do is keep those birds on site, quarantine that site, and try to seek help at that site. Never take live birds that are sick, especially with... Uh, even influenza-type diseases off-site because then you can uh, – the transmission rates of disease can be very high as opposed to if those birds are euthanized before and then taken off-site. Okay, great. Thanks. 
Thank you very for, very much for that added uh, information. Dr. Davidson, um, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on to clear up a lot of our questions that we had. I didn't see any other questions in the chat room, and I wanted uh, our other experts that would be coming on after the break to talk about, again, uh, all kinds of biosecurity treatments, uh, signs, symptoms, and things like that about AI specifically um, to have a chance to ask you any questions too because I'm sure there were some that I didn't uh, didn't cross my uh, wavelength in my brain. So, But thank you very much uh, for coming on today, taking the time out to explain to us and a lot of our listeners to really the, the again, science-based, fact-based, uh, study-based information about this specific binding. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch with you in the future. Thank you again so much for coming on today. All right. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate being able to share the information. So, and Great. happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. Thank you very much for joining us. All righty. We're going to do a short commercial break. When we come back, we've got Peter Brown, the chicken doctor, first state vet supply. We've got um, Dr. Uh, Bridget McCray, Ph.D. with Delaware State University, and Dr. Uh, Maurice Patiski with UC Davis. And we're going to be talking about those things, about uh, AI specifically, signs and symptoms, and, and, and again, the, the um uh, uh, biosecurity about, you know, prevention and putting maybe tarps over our lungs, you know, making that specific flyway area where where the finding was and uh, uh, treatments. And, and is it as simple as, as someone posted on Facebook, I oh, just vaccinate them and they'll be fine. <laughs> so we'll talk about that when we come back uh, from the short commercial break. So please stay with us. Lots more information coming your way. Are you in the market for a new chicken coop? Want one that will outlast all the others? then check out Urban Coop Company. All of their coops are made from 100% appearance-grade western red cedar with galvanized hardware and advanced all-weather joinery right here in the USA. Compared to other coops, Urban Coop Company coops will last longer and look better doing it. They're designed to be both beautiful and functional. In fact, they have earned the Chicken Whisperer seal of approval and are Chicken Whisperer approved. I invite you to browse their website to learn more about the many features of their coops and check out their integrated coop accessories that will make your life easier. Urban Coop Company is a family-owned business located in Dripping Springs, Texas, USA. They are passionate about building great coops because they know you're passionate about your backyard chickens. Visit them online at urbancoopcompany.com. That's urbancoopcompany.com. Give the chicken fountain a try. It's clean water by design. It's a new way to water your flock. Chickens to turkeys to ducks to peacocks. Nothing to lose, so start today. Not a major water they eat. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFRadio.com. That's GQFRadio.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. 
Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. Pictures of chickens on aprons are common across America, but picture a chicken wearing an apron and you'll probably get a good chuckle. Laugh if you must, but nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster and may even provide protection from an unexpected hawk attack. Hen savers come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and standard sized hens and roosters. Colors include camo, denim, navy, brown, khaki or black, and soon pink. Crazy K Farm is expanding its already colorful hen saver collection to include the color pink. A portion of their sales will be donated to organizations that fund breast cancer research and awareness. Order your Hensaver aprons today at Hensaver.com. That's Hensaver.com. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. All right, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. The show today, special edition, uh, we're talking about the avian influenza finding out in Oregon in a backyard chicken and um, uh, guinea flock. And we just got done talking with Dr. Mark Davidson with USDA, APHIS, and now we've got, again, uh, Peter Brown, also known as the Chicken Doctor with FirstStateVetSupply.com. And um, Dr. Bridget McCray, Ph.D. with Delaware State University, and Dr. Maurice Petiski with UC Davis. Um, all of y'all are on live now, so we can chime in at any time. Um, I want to try to take kind of a, a, an order approach here and maybe first talk about uh, a little bit about biosecurity. I was going to kind of uh, uh, go ahead and open this up to uh, Dr. McCray, because I know that's a big part of what you do with extension. Um, and, and talk about some things. You were the first one, I think, when I talked to you Friday, uh, where we posted on uh, Facebook. And if I can get over there uh, right now to my page and kind of go through the recommendations that over the phone uh, you had recommended. And then, of course, I followed up with and posted uh, on the Facebook page. So give me just a second here and I'll see if I can find that. And I'll go through that and you can add to or explain maybe why... Um, these uh, steps may be necessary. There were there were seven. Of course, we can add to this. But one, um, get your chickens in your coop. Two, place a tarp over the chicken run. Three, uh, deny all wild birds access to your chickens. Um, take down and remove all bird feeders, bird baths, and, and, and bird houses on your property. 
uh, implement a foot bath and use it. <laughs> um, wear dedicated clothing when taking care of your flock and wash weekly. Um, if your bird shows signs of illness, get a diagnosis immediately and impose a self-quarantine of your flock or farm until you have an official diagnosis. Now, this was West Coast biosecurity measures. If you're in that, if you want to call it a hot zone, um, Washington, Oregon, in California. So, Dr. McCray, um, uh, the importance of biosecurity here, um, anything you want to add to these and, and maybe or, or give specifics about these things that you had shared on our Facebook page on Friday? Well, thank you for having me on, Andy. And thank you for being so um, on point with this. It's unfortunately this is happening around the holidays, but um, still it just goes to prove it doesn't matter what time of year it is, the virus isn't going to care. It's going to show up and do what it does best, um, which is replicate itself however it can. Well, as far as the recommendations I made for the folks in Oregon, Washington, and California, um, I think Walter's question in the chat room is a good example of, well, we don't know how it got into the backyard flock. So since there was a pond on the property, there's a chance that wild waterfowl brought it in or wild migratory birds brought it in. And that's why I recommended that people put their birds up, keep wild birds out, do whatever you can to, to have a covered run, perhaps to keep wild bird feces out, away from your birds, but still allowing them outside so they can have a little more space to roam around in, uh-huh. and uh, removing anything that might attract wild birds. Another thing to consider is the time of year. Uh, and Dr. Potesky can speak to this probably more accurately than I can, but I know that certain weather conditions are more conducive to the survivability of viruses, such as avian influenza, and cold and wet conditions are favored versus hot and dry. Of course, there's a lot of factors to consider. Was the flock sick ahead of time? Um, was wild birds the actual source or, you know, was it a failure in biosecurity? But, Andy, there are times when we expect people to react appropriately to a potential danger in their area, and that that time is now for anyone in southern Oregon, uh, especially because we know a flock has been identified and um, I'm sure that person is not having the most wonderful Christmas, but um, uh-huh. I would say uh, the people in Southern Oregon right now, uh, unless this is your business with, like, say, outdoor pastured poultry, you need to be paying attention to the health of your birds. And a uh, a winter cough or cold may not be a winter and cough or cold this year. And uh, I applaud the owner for seeking out a veterinarian. Um, I know it can be difficult to find a veterinarian to see your birds, but, um, you know, unfortunately this flock was put down, but then again it may have saved everyone around them. Okay. That's difficult for a lot of people to understand. Give us a a breakdown of of how people uh, can... And, and the levels of where people can get help. Because so many times we see, well, there's not a vet in my area. There's not, my, my vet won't see chickens. 
And so they just give up at that point and go straight to the blog or, or the chicken form to get their information. Right. But there's there's different levels. There's, you know, uh, extension, there's poultry extension specialists, there's state vet, there's, and there's USDA, which is probably in, the, in their state somewhere as well, maybe a poultry lab. Give right. us kind of a breakdown of maybe starting so, at maybe your local dog and cat vet and then maybe searching for a chicken vet in the area and then going up the chain of where else they may be able to look to get some help. Okay. So this person obviously um, knew that there was a problem. I mean, could recognize that they were losing birds at an unusual rate, and it probably wasn't due to old age. And it's that kind of confidence to say, okay, I have a problem. I may or may not have the resources in my area, but I need to know what this problem is. And if I'm being a good neighbor, if I keep going the way I'm going to do things. It's, you know, the virus has its mode of action, but we humans have our own modes of action. And the the confidence to say, I need help, is sometimes hard for some people um, because they don't want to risk losing their birds. But then again, if they're losing their birds and they they know that they need to get their birds help, they they realize uh, I need to ask somebody for help. You can start with your dog and cat vet. You can explain that you may be experiencing something, and occasionally your dog or cat vet will come out and do a throat swab. Uh, that could be your first line of defense. And a throat swab is just a, a moistened Q-tip that goes goes down the throat, and it, it collects a little bit of saliva and uh, mucus from the respiratory system. Um Sometimes a large animal vet is more comfortable doing this than a dog or cat vet. And you might have to say, um, you know, I I don't want to bring any birds off this property, exactly as Dr. Poteski described, but a large animal vet may want to come to your property and do that kind of swab. Then after that, if you don't have access to any of these points, you may have to ask um a veterinarian in a, in a nearby county. Um, sometimes there are mobile uh, veterinarians who will come to you from another county. You may wish to contact the state veterinarian's office. Sometimes they'll send somebody out to do that swab for you. It depends on where you are, and of course the holidays make things difficult. But um, your next step might be... Um, taking a deceased bird and having it sent or hand-delivered to the state diagnostic lab and see why it died. Occasionally there is a fee involved with any of these tests, but you will have to do your homework and see what that fee is and, and what you can afford to do. Um, after that, after contacting, say, the diagnostic lab or the state diagnostic lab or a poultry diagnostic lab, they may be able to tell you which veterinarians are closest to you that you could contact for doing swabbing on your property. It's not an antagonistic relationship. They really are there to help you get done what you need to get done to find out if your flock is, is experiencing um, a very difficult disease or not. Very good. So it's more than just oh, my vet doesn't see chickens. I just you know I have no other choice. So I, I want to make people aware that there are some uh, there's a chain and you can go up that chain and um, 
locally, other counties, uh, the closest that's two hours away. Well, you know, when I when I hear that, I, I, you know, what are your chickens? But if work? you have a problem you and you know you have a problem, sometimes that right. two-hour drive is not as big a deal as you would think. Because I know a lot of your listeners love their birds to pieces, and they'll do what they have to do to get them help. Absolutely. Um, let's talk with uh, Dr. Petiski for for a moment, UC Davis, to give us some insight on the science of uh, AI um, and to give us some information about about the disease itself. You know, give give us some information about you know um, how it's highly pathogenic, why and how it it spreads, and and maybe some signs and, and symptoms, and 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 again maybe some treatments, and then we're going to put force get to uh, Peter Brown who. I talked with over the weekend about because he, he supplies a lot of people, a lot of show fanciers, a lot of backyard chickens with uh, meds, and uh, I specifically called him and said, "Okay, hypothetical question. Uh, I'm seeing this occur across uh, in the western part of the United States. Uh, send me the vaccine." And, and me and Peter talked talked about that. Uh, then you know, because someone had posted that on my Facebook page, I just vaccinate him, and then we uh, bought security, everything will be fine. So. Um, really, just uh, Dr. Petisky, uh, um if you can tell us about AI, this kind of a specific disease, what what makes it a concern, uh, what makes it sp- the highly pathogenic spread a little bit greater than than, than not the the other strains, and then um, maybe some some uh, signs, symptoms, treatments. Just really tell us about the disease in whole, if you would. Since it tends to be up up your alley out there, UC Davis. Ooh. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me, Andy. I appreciate what you're doing and uh, all the different people you're able to reach out to um, via your magazine and radio show and things like that. Um, So just a couple things. One thing I wanted to to touch on from uh, Dr. McCray was um, the idea of resources. And um, because this is in times like this, one of the good things about times like this is that we can uh, tell the audience about all the different poultry-type resources that are available um, not just for avian influenza diagnostics, but um, a lot of other diagnostic uh, resources that are extremely helpful, I think, to backyard and small commercial producers. So most states have a diagnostic lab system, like Dr. McCray was um, explaining. In California, we have four laboratories, and uh, among other things, um, for the most part, submissions to the California Diagnostic Lab of birds below 1,000, if you have a flock below 1,000, birds, the submissions that you make to that lab are basically free. So you can get a lot of different surveillance work done. There's a lot of resources there. Um, they will do some amazing work. You submit to these labs. They have veterinary pathologists who will do, in some cases, thousands of dollars of diagnostic work for free, specifically for what we're talking about today, though. They'll do it because we want to lower all the different impediments to people submitting birds to a diagnostic lab because just in case we do have IPAP avian influenza, or we do have exotic Newcastle disease, we want people to submit those birds sooner than later. But the advantage for the uh, consumers, for the backyard enthusiasts, is that they're getting all kinds of other diagnostic work done. Um, they can identify salmonella, mycoplasma, et cetera, et cetera, nutritional deficiencies, and they can work with you um, in order to try to prevent those diseases from getting to the rest of your flock. So if there's one message I want other people to know, it's not just about AI. It's about all the resources that you have to deal with AI and all these other problems that you might have in your flock as um, hopefully this outbreak uh, dissipates at some point. Mm-hmm. So good. going to, to, to AI and avian influenza itself, 
So um, just in a general sense, I think what, what's unique about this outbreak is we're dealing with a strain of avian influenza, a high-path avian influenza, that we haven't seen in North America along the Pacific Flyway. It's been in the EU and in Asia. And um, when we talk about high path, and I know the last speaker, Dr. Davidson, I think spoke about this, but when we talk about high path, that, that definition is solely based on birds. So if we have a high mortality, if we have a lot of birds that die, that is one of the things that's required in order to uh, fulfill the definition of highly pathogenic avian influenza versus low pathogenic avian influenza. It has nothing to do with humans at all, that definition. Um, it's just for birds. So a high-path avian influenza, obviously, is an influenza that has a high mortality rate uh, in poultry, and that's what it's defined on, not in wild birds, but in poultry. And um, that's how we basically define it. So when we think about how these viruses, I'm not going to go too much into the biology of it, but the, the virus itself will have a be related to a high mortality event. Um, so if you are on a piece of property and you see a lot of birds that die, doesn't necessarily mean that it's high-path AI, it could be a couple other diseases, but that's one of the things that you would consider um, as far as, especially in light of what's going on right now, one of the diseases that you would potentially consider. It can be spread via um, multiple methods, uh, both what we call direct and indirect, and this kind of ties right back into what Dr. McCray was saying about biosecurity. So the virus can be excreted from the nose, the mouth, the cloaca, and the conjunctiva into the environment. And kind of dovetailing with what Dr. McCray was saying about how it can live in the environment, in hot temperatures and dry temperatures, the virus doesn't do very well. It's in what we call an enveloped virus, enveloped virus, and these enveloped virus uh, need moisture. So in the summertime, we don't see as much of it in the environment as we probably do in the wintertime, in part because the environment uh, allows it to survive a little longer in the wintertime because we have these moist, wet conditions, um, along, especially along the Pacific Flyway in the winter that we don't particularly have in the summer, especially the dry, hot California summers. So if I was going to tell people what they should consider when we think about biosecurity and prevention, we want the environment in our coops and around our coops to be nice and dry and clean. We don't want it to be moist. And they've done studies where they've looked at the avian influenza virus in the environment, and it's been able to survive up to 40 days in manure um, because it's that nice, moist um, um, environment that allows this virus to kind of uh, survive and then it can be transmitted to other birds um, from the environment. And that would be an indirect transmission. You don't even need birds to transmit it. The birds basically poop it out. It stays in the environment and then other birds get exposed to it. So it's really important now you can start thinking about biosecurity and how we prevent that, keeping your coop clean and keeping your coop dry and keeping the surrounding environment in, in those type of conditions when at all possible is one, the way that we, one way that we can prevent the disease from um, being transmitted. Um, would that kind of cover most of the things you wanted, or are there other specifics that you wanted me to address? Oh, no, yeah, that, that's great as far as, uh, again, kind of like the uh, prevention, highly pathogenic, and it's spreading and, and all of that, that information. How about, um, you know, like I said, first and foremost, uh, especially right now, uh, since since we have a positive case uh, in, in that area, seeing sick birds and and um, uh, you know going above and beyond. Oh well, maybe I'll just go to Tractor Supply and buy some Thailand and give it to them. Um, may, you know <laughs> that we see so often um, on, on blogs and forums. So um, maybe a um, also maybe a uh, with the first recommendation, and I'll, and I'll ask all three of you, you can chime in at any time. If you're out there sitting on the five-gallon bucket looking at your birds 
and you're in one of those three states, and and you see, uh, and we can talk about the symptoms, these symptoms, and maybe they're, uh, that's one problem, I think, with chicken diseases, is people will say, oh, my chickens had the, those same symptoms you just posted, and it was this, and I gave them this, and it worked, where so many different diseases present with the same symptoms, and one medication is not going to work for this, that, or, or, or the other, even though the symptoms based on that backyard person, poultry keeper may seem the same. So um, would you say, in, it w- would it be different in states right now, like maybe the states on the coast, uh, if you have these symptoms, to maybe get on the phone and, and, and go the extra step, versus maybe if you have these symptoms in Georgia, maybe you go a different route, or, or does it matter? Maybe Maybe it should... Uh, maybe in Georgia, if you had those symptoms, you wouldn't necessarily now start calling the, the state or USDA and, and go to tractor supply and buy Thailand or, or something. Uh, but if you're over here in, in, in this uh, western flyway and you know this is happening, maybe now it changes how you're going to treat your birds. So maybe a little bit about um, um, uh, signs and symptoms, uh, if they're any different for this AI and, and other things. And then maybe some, uh, is there a treatment? Is there not a treatment? Is there a vaccine? Is there not a vaccine? And then uh, and that, that why, that's why the phone call to, to the vet or to get testing is so important. And we, we can start with uh, maybe Peter Brown on this one. Well, first off, um, I've always been a big proponent of knowing your flock. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of like knowing your car. You know, if you drive a car every day, uh, you know when something isn't right with it. <clears throat> I think the same thing applies to, to the flock. Um, uh, getting a five-gallon bucket out, we talk about that all the time, but it's extremely important. So uh, I don't like to be an alarmist with this thing. I think that most people should be prepared, uh, should be listening and, and paying attention and not poo-pooing uh, like I've been hearing in different blogs and, and different uh, posts, uh, Facebook and that kind of thing. Uh, well, it's a, it's a West Coast thing. It's not going to affect us. I think if you really take a look at those um, uh, diagrams uh, showing the flyways, uh, there are uh, uh, some of the East Coast flyways that actually come in from uh, from the Mississippi uh, flyway and, and above out of Canada. So, uh, you know, th- this could go anywhere, anyway, anytime, and I think people just need to be prepared for it, pay attention. Um, I've said it before, when you when you look on your birds, you're sitting on that five-gallon bucket or you're sitting on the porch, you're just standing there at the fence looking at them. Uh, when Molly comes across the yard and her tail's dragging the ground and she's barely walking, she ain't having a bad day. They're not like us. They don't phone it in, you know, uh, i got something better to do. And, and, and they just don't. You know, they're, they're sick, and now's the time to get on it. And if you know your flock, like most people uh, that I usually deal with do, they know what's going on in those flocks. They know almost exactly what diseases they have or don't have. So when something odd shows up, something fast-moving, you need to be fast-moving. And I'm not so sure that I would take a bird uh, that I was unsure of in this particular uh, situation. Some sudden onset with high mortality, uh, I think I might get somebody to come and look at them rather than take it somewhere else. But that's six of one, half dozen the other. Doing something is better than nothing, but being extremely careful uh, in how I went about doing that. Uh, to give you an example, Back in 2002, 2003, uh, in Virginia, their uh, low-path AI started out as one turkey flock. And within 30 days, uh, they had over 60 flocks infected. So uh, it's easy to get around, easily spread. doesn't take a lot of this virus. Uh, a small dropping the size of a dime can, can infect an entire flock. Uh, and so it is extremely uh, important 
uh, you know, to take care of that. Now, on the vaccination side of it, there are vaccines available, but not to the general public. Um, to my knowledge, there has only been one flock of uh, birds uh, ever vaccinated within the borders of the United States. It has happened elsewhere outside this country, uh, and that was uh, at Cough Cough Egg Farms in uh, Connecticut in March 2003. Uh, it was uh, uh, at the request of the uh, assistant state veterinarian there to the uh, Department of Agriculture and, uh, and so on. Uh, that the economic impact of depopulating uh, 4 million birds in layer cages, uh, actually almost 5 million, uh, spread out over 38 farms, would have a devastating impact on not only the farm but the, uh, the state of Connecticut. Uh, the state of Connecticut at that time would have been on the hook for about $7.5 million uh, in, in indemnification fees that they pay back to the, to the uh, grower. So they, they were able to, uh, to uh, get that done and vaccinate uh, those flocks, but you can't get the vaccine without, you know, the state veterinarian approving it and some sort of protocol uh, for administering it, monitoring it, and so on and so forth. So it's it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, Let me ask you this real quick, and then I'll, re I'll refer that over to Dr. Petiski about the vaccine and maybe a, a, a treatment, if at all, other than the calling. Um, with your um, in your position, you hear from a lot of the public, people calling us at birds or wanting to buy. Uh, the meds that you cure, the first state that supply and things. And then you had mentioned a lot of people are kind of, quote-unquote, poo-pooing this. I've had folks post on Facebook that, well, I don't have ducks, I don't have waterfowl, I have chickens, so it's not going to concern me, even though it was found in chickens up there. So a lot of, uh, and, and, and nobody here um, is saying panic. Nobody here really is using the word outbreak too much because we do have the one um, uh, uh, finding up there uh, up there in Oregon, but um, what, you know, have you had anybody, the calls you've received based on this, uh, Peter, what um, what are you telling them if they say, well, I've got, I think I have a sick bird, but I'm not on the West Coast, what should I do? Is, is because this now is here, even though it's just one case, does it change what you're telling folks to do? Or do you still get kind of signs and symptoms and then say, this sounds like classic well, yeah, usually when I deal with people, uh, most of the time I'm dealing with them on the phone or through emails and that type of thing. Um, I think asking the you know as best you can the, the right questions and and anybody that thinks that they can you know uh, give a definitive diagnosis on anything over the phone is just fooling themselves. Uh, I've been doing this a long time, and uh, uh, I will say one thing. You know, obviously, uh, for the most part. You know, most things generally uh, happen to be uh, pretty simple. But th this is something that you just don't fool around with. So, okay, you're not on the West Coast, but I think, you know, due diligence, uh, and I said this before, I always say it on, on the show, you know, you can run out in front of the bus every day. Never, mm -hmm. you, you've been doing it for 10 years. And one day you didn't see the seam in the road, you trip and fall, the bus runs you over. Do you want to be the person that gets run over? That's that's the issue for me from where I am. So um, most people are going to buy what they want to buy, most people are not um, uh, necessarily going to listen because people don't want to hear it. Um, it, it it's a funny thing. It, it is a very, very funny thing. Humans are a funny bunch. Yeah, right. Dr. Petiski, what um, the, the, vet, the vaccine, maybe you can share just, again, signs and symptoms, AI, and if there are any that are distinguishable between some other respiratory illnesses, and then also your, your two cents worth on the, the vaccine, so it's not something the backyard is just going to go to tractor supply and buy or order from first aid or 
a, a supply store. So, um, and um, is, is there's not a vaccine available because there's so many different strains uh, of this. They couldn't just be one to cover it all. Or um, is there a vaccine for the low path AI and not the high path? If you'll uh, um, not, uh, educate us on that a little bit, Dr. Patisky. Right. So, um, unfortunately, there is no, you know, we have all these different types of uh, high path and low path. And low path can also cause mortality, not as much as the high path, but we have all these different types of avian influenza. The vaccines only work against very specific subtypes of avian influenza. And the reality is, is that if you did vaccinate a flock, and we don't do that in North America, and I'll explain why in a minute, but if you did vaccinate the flock, the it becomes very complicated and difficult to potentially deal with vaccinated versus unvaccinated flocks um, in the sense that it's difficult to differentiate between a vaccinated flock and a flock that was affected because some of the diagnostic tests that you'll do are looking for the presence of antibodies. So you can't differentiate those two, which makes um, quarantine very challenging in some scenarios. And when you vaccinate a flock, you're also kind of masking the clinical signs that you would normally see in birds that are affected by avian influenza. So those birds might eventually actually be carriers if they were exposed and are not showing the clinical signs. If those birds are taken off-site and taken to a new location, then those birds could potentially transmit the virus to other flocks. So there's almost a, you know, it's kind of one of these things where we have to be They've done studies where they've looked globally at the responses where people have, some countries decide to vaccinate for some of the reasons that Peter explained as far as uh, economics, and they do vaccination, and they compare that to countries where they've done vaccination, excuse me, countries where they've actually just depopulated flocks. And this is an apples and oranges comparison, but if you look at it, what you start kind of seeing emerging is the reality that you actually have to depopulate, that the outbreaks are actually shorter if you use a depopulation um, approach toward controlling avian influenza, high-path avian influenza, versus if you try to vaccinate. And the reason is just what I said. You end up masking the signs. It becomes very difficult to actually know what flocks are vaccinated and not vaccinated and the spread of the virus by uh, composted material and by other um, not properly treated, if it's not properly composted, you can have spread of virus from those uh, unaffected or what seem to be unaffected farms. So when you think about how do you save the most amount of birds, it, it's kind of counterintuitive, but the reality is we've, just based upon other countries' experiences, it seems to be that the un, that if, if we don't vaccinate and we quickly depopulate and control and quarantine as quickly as possible, that that's when we have the most efficacious response. And what we really want to prevent we don't want any of these viruses to be endemic because once they're endemic in our environment, then we're just trying to mitigate the, um, the consequences of a high-path avian influenza that is present in the Pacific Flyway or present in, in our flocks. And Mexico is dealing with that right now with some of the avian influenza that they have floating around in their commercial poultry and in their backyard poultry. Um, as far as the clinical signs, you know, the, 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 the quickest clinical sign you'll see, and unfortunately it, it's sometimes the only clinical sign you'll see, is a high mortality event. You'll see a rapid drop in egg production and a high mortality event. If you are a little more fastidious with your birds as far as watching them, observing them, you will see respiratory signs, coughing and sneezing. Um, you'll see sometimes diarrhea, excessive thirst, swollen waddles and combs. 
the problem with all the, the, the these clinical signs is that none of them are what we call pathognomonic, and that just means none of them, you wouldn't see watery diarrhea, obviously, greenish watery diarrhea, and say, oh, that's avian influenza. You wouldn't see a swollen waddle and say, oh, that's avian influenza. That can be other things. That could be exotic Newcastle disease. That could be several other diseases. The, the point being that there is no, and as Peter kind of alluded to, there there is no... Um, slam dunk answer on what it is. And that's why we need diagnostic labs. Birds have to be submitted diagnostic labs so we can identify what the disease is. It might be something that's treatable. It might be something that's completely unrelated to avian influenza. And that's why it's really incumbent upon backyard owners and small commercial producers and large commercial producers to get rapid diagnostic because the more quickly that you identify whatever the disease is, avian influenza or otherwise, the more quickly you can potentially treat those birds or the more quickly you can mitigate any um, uh, severe consequences. As far as treatments for avian influenza, unfortunately there are none. And um, anyone who says that there are treatments for it is, is unfortunately um, spreading information that's not accurate. The only way that we can control avian influenza is um, by basically stomping it out, by getting rid of uh, the virus and its reservoir. We can't do that in wildlife, obviously, but we can do that in domestic poultry. And the one thing I would suggest to people is that when we do have birds, those are our birds, we love our birds, but just in my opinion, I think we have a responsibility to the greater community around us to protect our friends' birds and our neighbors' birds. And um, by keeping a virus on our property that we know exists, we're not basically accomplishing that. That there's a, there, In my mind, there's some kind of contract that we sign with our neighbors when we have birds because of the ease of how avian diseases can spread between flocks. That's great information. Um, I, I've got about six minutes, so I need to really wrap this up. It's really obvious we could go hey, Andy, day, but yeah, go if ahead. I can add, if I could ask one more thing yeah. to that. Uh, yeah, I was going to actually go to all three of you uh, one last okay. time, and then we'll the show. So we'll start with you, Peter, and then okay. we'll go to uh, Dr. McCray and then uh, Dr. Patinsky, and we'll just have kind of final comments or suggestions of something you may want to share before we end the show. So we'll start with you, Peter. Sure. Yeah, you know, one more thing with this uh, vaccination uh, thing. Um, it's a long-term process. It's not something that you run out tomorrow and you vaccinate 5 million birds. These are uh, inactivated vaccines. Uh, they require two shots as a general rule. Uh, I know the one in Connecticut did on, on the birds that were not infected uh, and one shot on those that uh, were infected to slow down the shed rate. But um, this was a basically uh, almost like a three-year project. Uh, the cost of, of uh, remediation of this was about $16 million, uh, compared to almost uh, uh, with the depopulation, economic impact, uh, and everything else, talk about $200 million. And you're talking about that's the kind of money back in 2003. So in today's dollars, probably a lot more money. But, uh, you know, the, the overall economic impact uh, and the cost of doing it, uh, I think, um, that this is uh, not going to fly. These were, these were commercial egg layers. Uh, most of the time we see this in, in, uh, in broiler flocks. And uh, uh, another thing, it's hunting season. I know uh, the flyways here are full of snow geese. Um, they're in every field practically around here. Uh, it's 50 degrees outside right now, but you'd swear in some of these fields it's snowed. And, um, you know, people go hunting, dogs run out there. There's chicken houses here everywhere on every corner here. So the potential for it to, to spread at this time of year is huge. And I think everybody needs to do their part, as Dr. Patetsky said. Okay. Thank you very much um, uh, for joining us today. Uh, Peter Brown, also known as the Chicken Doctor, founder of First State 
BackVetSupply.com. And so he's a regular guest uh, every Monday here on Back Air Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Peter, thank you very much for your time today and your uh, uh, knowledge on the topic. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be part of it. Thank you. Okay, and uh, next we'll go to uh, Dr. McRae if there's anything. Um, I know you shared some great information about biosecurity, which is kind of uh, your expertise. Uh, anything you want to add about anything from the top of the show to, to the end of the show now? Anything you oh, I should have said this, or I need to make a point of that? Anything you'd like to wrap up with today? Thank you, Andy. Well, I know that in your chat room you've got some people who are up in the Canada area, and they are surrounded by this issue, and I think some of them feel that they, they've got a lot of questions and concerns and they don't want to lose their pets. Just a reminder, when you, and, and Dr. Pesky did an excellent job of describing this, um, when you keep backyard chickens, they're not considered pets. They are, in some definitions, livestock. And this is the responsibility that you carry with them is the chance that if your flock is positive for um, a disease such as this, you may have to um, you may have to say goodbye to them. And that's never what they talk about in the magazine articles and online and forums. And this is right. a risk of keeping livestock species. You may think of them as pets. You treat them as pets. They're going to treat them like they would whatever they need, you know, however they need to spread themselves. Um, So for some of your listeners in Canada, you can, and this may not be your comfort level, you can test your flock and see if they're positive. Of course, you should be implementing every biosecurity step possible. They can come help you uh, improve your biosecurity and give you assistance and advice that way. Um, and uh, not everybody's going to be comfortable with this, but I hope that they will be because they, you shouldn't feel alone in this, and I think some people are feeling that. Um, and so I'll say implement your biosecurity plans wherever you are in this in this region, um, especially southern Oregon right now for those folks up in Canada. You've been living with this for months now, um, or at least several weeks at least, and you're going to have to perhaps pick up the phone and talk to somebody and see if there's an all clear or at least be put on a list to get a call when there's an all clear. And uh, and it may be something where you're just going to be living with biosecurity measures that you put in place, and that's why we have a biosecurity for birds program is because of instances like this. This is why we talk about biosecurity almost every episode that I'm on, Andy. It's because we don't want people to be surprised. Well, if you're implementing the biosecurity procedures, you've already lowered your risk. And there are times when if you have biosecurity in place, you don't have um, the problems that your neighbor will have. And it's a good neighbor policy. Uh, Find out what your problem is, get it taken care of. That's it. Nobody's going to blame you. Nobody's going to point fingers at you. Nobody's going to show up at your house and shake their finger and say, you did a bad job. No. We want you to do well with your birds. We want you to be successful. We want you to have a happy, healthy flock. All right. I'll leave it at that, Andy, and um, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much. You can listen to Dr. McCray. She's on the show on the first and third 
Thursday of every single month here. And uh, as her and Peter both for many years have been um, a staple on uh, the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisper Show, we'll wrap it up with uh, you, Dr. Petiski, and, and, and your final thoughts and any comments that you definitely wanted to make that maybe weren't addressed in the show. The final question in our chat room was, what about MPIP? Uh, I, I thought that I thought you know the test for AI and and that you know this would be a good thing to to have and um and and maybe you can shed some light on that uh, in your in your final thoughts or comments about maybe something you wanted to see addressed in the show but wasn't and share with that and also maybe give us a little bit about MPIP uh, and this specific um, topic. Did you did you hear my question? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Uh-oh, he just broke away. Hello? I've got a very, very bad connection, but I'd love to oh, love to hear hello. some of your final, your final thoughts and maybe um, uh, about MPIP. Is there, is there any way, I hate to ask you this, but could you call right back in for your final thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I can try to call right in. Okay. okay call call right call. back in. That would be superior. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, and um, that's Dr. Petiski. We want to make sure that we... Uh, give him a chance here to maybe address anything that, that uh, he was hoping to hear on the show that, that wasn't, and then um, also ask about uh, MPIP. It was asked in the uh, chat room. So I'm on the switchboard now. Hopefully we'll see his number flash back up here, and uh, we can uh, get um, – Yep, there it is. Perfect. Let's go ahead and bring Dr. Petiski with uh, UC Davis back on the air. Hopefully we have a better connection. So uh, kind of in your wrap-up, if there's anything that you uh, was hoping to, to get addressed on the show that wasn't that you'd like to share, and then maybe address a little bit about MPIP, and we'll wrap the show up with that. Yeah, so just very briefly, the National Poultry Improvement Program is an outstanding program, and not just for avian influenza, but among other things, if you buy birds, if you're going to buy birds, make sure you buy from feed stores, and from breeders, when at all possible, that utilize the MPIP because they do surveillance for, among other diseases, avian influenza. That doesn't mean those, ber those birds, when you get them, in theory, should basically be free of avian influenza, and then it's your job using proper biosecurity to prevent them from uh, getting exposed to avian influenza and other diseases, including um, some types of salmonella um, that are relatively common in backyard birds. Just briefly, the, the things I would really just kind of want to reiterate, there, there's no magical treatment for avian influenza. There's none, and there's no magical vaccine for the type of avian influenza that we're dealing with. So, um, you know, it really comes down to kind of what Dr. McGray was saying. We have to not eliminate risk, but reduce risk using proper biosecurity. And the last thing I really wanted to point out is, is that this is, I think, a really good opportunity for everyone to kind of take stock of what their resources are. So I'm an extension veterinarian at UC Davis. I basically my tax I'm paid for by by your tax dollars, by your listeners' tax dollars. I'm available to help as far as you know offering advice and resources that are available um, to backyard enthusiasts in California. There's someone like me basically in every state, and like I said, your tax dollars are paying for people like myself. So you should utilize those resources. Those, di those diagnostic labs are again tax dollars. So. Make sure you're leveraging all the resources that you have, not just leveraging your small animal veterinarian or your large animal veterinarian, but if you, um, in, in many situations, there's all kinds of other resources that are available that are low cost and or free. And I think this is a good opportunity for people to take advantage of those systems and just to be aware of what their resources are. 
I completely agree because so many times, and it seems every single day, all I hear is, well, my vet doesn't see chickens. And then they, they they think it's over at that point. And so they go to these blogs and forums to try to get their information, and a lot of times it's marginal at best. So um, great information. Dr. Podeski, thank you for your time today. Uh, as always, it's great to have you as a resource to come on the show when you're available and uh, share your expertise with all of our listeners. So thank you very much, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday. You too. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Okay, and I think maybe Dr. McCray had one more thing to uh, add. Um, for the most part, the, the, the show, uh, I would say, it, it has completed. Uh, I'll bring uh, Peter back on to see if he has anything to, to wrap up uh, at all. And, uh, and let me bring um, Bridget on. She said something about uh, in the chat room that uh, wasn't sure that we were done. So, Dr. McCray, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I have terrible cell service today. I'm sorry. You were <laughs> a little early, but we made out what you were saying. Um, I know that uh, there's a little bit of dialogue in the chat room about people who are far away from any veterinarian of any sort in the Canadian region. Um, that can also apply to uh, here in the U.S. Uh, if you're two hours away, a veterinarian can come to you. If you are four hours away, they can fly a veterinarian to you if you think you have a problem. So it's just a matter of picking up the phone and being willing to um, to have a veterinarian come to you. And I know I was having a dialogue with um, Shelly Work, and if she's in the Fraser Valley, there are veterinarians there. If she's outside of the Fraser Valley, um, you know they and you know you have a problem, you can just pick up the phone and ask them, "What do I do?" And they might be able to send someone on your behalf. So. Oh, she's she's very, very much um, northern edge of the primary control zone, 11 hours from the hot zone. Um, there are people at CFI who can help you and can answer your questions and may already have something put together in this contingency. So pick up the phone and start talking to people. If you have a problem, if you have sick birds, um they're there to work for you. You're already paying for them with your taxes. Might as well put them to work. <laughs> All right. Hey, All right. Thanks, that's Dr. for everyone else. Thank you very much for participating today, and keep biosecurity at the forefront of your mind as we move through this winter. Very good. Thank you. And Peter, you're still alive, too. Uh, any last thoughts? And then we'll, uh, we'll cut away. Yeah, I just think, that, you know, uh, just to, I don't want to beat a dead horse with this thing, but uh, people need to be diligent, pay attention. You know, um, watch what's going on. Keep people out of your flock. I've said it numerous times. We, you know, generally don't have any problems here at our place because we don't allow anybody here. And, uh, you know, we've just uh, getting ready to put up netting ourselves, and we changed from a a, uh, a large hole netting because we didn't want, <clears throat> with the large hole netting, we didn't want the snow buildup uh, in the winter to take the netting down, but we changed to a half-inch by half-inch uh, poultry netting so that uh, we could keep birds out for the most part. So, you know, you've got to try to do the, the best you can. I realize not everybody's situation is going to allow them, you know, to, um, you know, to do these different things. But uh, you've got to take every precaution you can. Uh, uh, there, there isn't enough that can be said about good biosecurity. Andy, you and I talked about it over the weekend, you know, this visiting mm -hmm. one farm and, other, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's yes, just suicidal. It's you know, so for, from my perspective... Um, 
I think there was a, a ton of good information that was put out here today, um, none of it being alarmist. That's not what this is about. This is about being smart, proactive, and, and, and taking care and doing due diligence that we talk about all the time. So I just think it's important. There is no vaccine uh, that is readily available to you. And most of these vaccines, by the way, uh, when they do uh, use these type of vaccines, that you know, uh, they are what we call an autogenous vaccine. They are made from the virus on that particular farm, and it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, there, there are on occasions where there might be one uh, where they, they, uh, they already have that virus in, in, in hand and have some vaccine made or something like that, but it takes a while. It's not something you just do overnight. So uh, I know for a fact that the uh, 2003 outbreak at, in Connecticut was uh, was a you know a long drawn out process uh, that uh, covered practically three years, and um, I don't think that's ever been repeated. I've never heard of it being done again anywhere. Um, and you know the reason they don't do it, and Dr. Petesky said that you know nip it in the bud and do it now, get it over with. Uh, you know the, nobody likes the depopulation thing, but you go back and look at the '83 '84 outbreak in Virginia and Pennsylvania. It was huge, 17 million birds. Mm-hmm. 17 million birds. That's a lot. And it doesn't take long. Like I said, the other outbreak uh, down there, uh, one flock today, 30 days, 60 flocks. And, um, you know, there was a lot of issues. And, you know, I do have a, uh, an interest in the, uh, in the disposal process. That's why I asked that question right off the bat. I've done a lot of research on that years ago. You know, and I, I know that uh, years ago they were ill-prepared. In 83, 84, they were ill-prepared. Uh, even in 2003, they were ill-prepared for the, the the number of birds. So this can this can be overwhelming, and by by uh, them having these new things in place, composting on the farm rather than hauling them away, uh, makes a big difference. And uh, I was just curious as to what they did at this particular farm with a small uh, group of birds. Uh, incineration is a thought. But then you can become air pollution. Some states you can't do that. They used to incinerate birds here where I am, uh, and they knock that off. They don't do that anymore. Um, most of the time they compost here. And uh, so I was just curious as how, how they were doing it uh, in this particular flock, seeing how it was quite small. But don't, don't be led and don't be fooled by the fact that it's an East Coast problem at the moment. This can pop up anywhere, and it does. You look at all of the cases of, uh, of avian influenza that have been here in the United States, and you will see that most of them happen during that wet weather that uh, Dr. Petesky was talking about. They happen when it's cold, when it's wet, when it's rainy. Um, and most of these happen in that late fall, uh, right into the, to the spring. The, the one up there at Kafkaf Kof was in March, middle of March in 2003. Yep. So, you know, just everybody keep their head up and pay attention. And uh, I think everybody will come out of this thing fine. It shouldn't, shouldn't be a big deal, but we'll see. We'll see. Very good. All right, uh, Peter Brown, uh, Chicken Doctor, founder of First State, FirstStateVetSupply.com. We thank you for joining us and all your insight on this. And I thought it was a good question as well about how they were uh, disposed of. And and um, but I want to thank all of our guests uh, today um, uh, from the USDA and uh, Peter Brown and uh, Dr. McRae, Dr. Petiski. We thank you all for for coming on. Hopefully, this uh, answered a lot of people's questions. Uh, and uh, it put a lot of uh, myths, rumors, and stereotypes that are out there uh, rampant on the chicken blogs and forums. Put all those to bed. Good uh, science-based, fact-based, study-based information here. We'll continue on our end to monitor this. Uh, I do have an open line to Washington, D.C., to the USDA as the national spokesperson uh, and uh, for the Biosecurity for Birds program. So 
Uh, any information I get, I will be sure to share along via Facebook and Twitter and this radio show if need be. I can, uh, this will probably be our last show for some time because of the holidays, but if need be, I can uh, schedule a, a breaking show or uh, uh, any time uh, of the day, uh, seven days a week. So we'll do that if need be. But um, mostly Facebook and Twitter is a great way to follow us around. So uh, and visit our website, chickenwhisperer.com, and that's where you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Again, thank you very much, all of our guests, and thank you for all of our listeners. And we hope you have an absolutely wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. God bless everybody. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha